You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is David Boyer, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Hey, y'all. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, we have a panel of one today, and we're going to be talking about what are the different roles we play in the financial independence community. So, David, I'll give you a chance to do a quick introduction. Let the audience know who you are. Hi, I'm David. I'm 41. Been married for more than six years now. We have two children, a 15-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son. In my real job, I'm a naval officer with over 18 years of service, and we currently live in Chesapeake, Virginia, and I am the guy behind Phiology.com. So David, I realize you and I have known each other for a long time, and I feel really close with you, but I've never sat down and talked to you about your kind of origin Phi story. So how did you discover financial independence, and what have you done with it since you discovered the idea? Well... Our parents instilled a good work ethic in us when we were pretty young. When I say us, I'm referring to Stephen as well. He is my twin brother. Your audience knows him as the founder of Camp Fi. We worked since we were about 13. And ever since then, our dad encouraged us to save about 80% of what we made. We continued to work through high school and college. I kept reading money books. The two most influential books for me were Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Now, there are dozens more that I read in my 20s. And that doesn't mean that I made all good, smart financial moves. I was unfocused, as many people in their 20s are, and I made plenty of mistakes. And the stock market crash, I thought I was doing something great when I shifted all of my stocks over to a G fund in the thrift savings plan. At the time, I had about $40,000 in the funds in my thrift savings plan, which is the military equivalent of a civilian 401k. And I thought I was a smart guy in doing so. It turned out the joke was on me uh, because as I was set in my pride watching my balance change zero during the downturn, I also didn't watch it grow as soon as it bounced back up for years, really. You know, and the teens percentage returns may be higher in stocks when it rebounded. I was looking at my two to three percent return in my government securities fund. So what you're describing is you started out as an investing novice. 
what kind of turned the tide? And how did you realize that you were missing out on opportunities and start forging your path to financial independence? Well, luckily or unluckily, I was in Baghdad for a year between 2007 and 2008. Uh, And at the time, I actually had $26,000 of total credit card debt. But when you get deployed for six months or a year or more, you're able to make a lot more money and save a lot more money. So I was able to climb quickly out of that debt. So that kind of propelled me into the okay, I'm out of anxiety mode and I can start really, let me ride this wave and make some real progress towards my financial future. I continued to educate myself about money matters, but still never really developed a plan with clear goals. And on my reading, I found real estate interesting and I didn't know anything about the 1% rule or calculating cap rates, but I still bought my first property anyway in 2011. Uh, Since then, I've purchased five more rental properties. Uh, Now I have six rental properties and a seventh is in the works. So my financial plan includes real estate, rental income, includes contributing to my thrift savings plan, and it will include a pension when I retire from the military. So I'm interested in this idea that you went out and bought real estate before you really knew the terms or the rules that went along with it. And I was exactly the same thing. When I bought my first rental property, I had never heard of the 1% rule. You now have six or seven properties. Was there a point where it switched? Did you discover someone like Paula Pant or Coach Carson and then start realizing that there was more of a method to the madness? Well, because I started in 2011, I wasn't very familiar with all of the personalities in the real estate arena, especially in the FI community. So many times people who stumble upon Paula Pant or Coach Carson or Paul David Thompson, they get it quick because it's all right there quick. In 2011, I don't know that there was a single source that had it all on a silver platter waiting for someone just to devour it all. I know I didn't see it if it was out there. So unlike many other people who jump in this five community first and then say, okay, oh, and then there's real estate. I was kind of just taking little nuggets as I got them and tried to apply it. So it was probably a little messier than it could have been or had to be, but here we are. Do you think that being in the military made it different for you? So specifically referring to rental real estate investing, military people have to move around a lot. So sometimes military people will buy a single family residence for their primary residence and then try to turn that into a rental property after they go to the next duty station. That almost never works out ideally unless you use the same framework, the same factors to buy your primary residence that you would a good rental property, which just doesn't happen. I would say less than 1% of the time people really do that. So for me, my default is to actually rent wherever we live and then continue to buy decent rental properties in my hometown. And luckily, I've got Stephen who lives in our hometown and he's able to take care of many of the day-to-day things that I would have to take care of. So it's not just real estate though, but the military path to FI seems different to me too because you have this big thing, this pension to think about. I've always looked at this in sort of a funny way because not being in the military, it was always hard for me to understand. Does the idea of a pension play a big role in your financial independence planning? It absolutely does. Many people in the military, and you'll hear stories, I'm in the military, I don't make much money, particularly on the enlisted side and sometimes even on the officer side. I don't make much money. I'm going to have to work after retirement. Retirement meaning after 20 years of service, whether that means staying in the military past 20 or getting out and going to find another job. But if they really look at the numbers, if you're a decent military person, you can advance fairly quickly, even throughout the enlisted ranks and get a really good paycheck. 
And so if you take away the pension aspect of it altogether, and you're really on equal playing field with the civilian counterparts as far as phi planning, and you take the perspective of, okay, in 20 years, I want to be phi, you can really be super duper phi at the end of 20 years once you start accounting for that pension. That is something I personally try to relay to people who are in the military that have got more than 10 years left until they hit their 20-year mark. Uh, And sometimes the light bulb goes off. Most of the time it doesn't, but I do what I can. I'm kind of intrigued by this idea of it being 2011 and you not having those resources to understand how to reach financial independence or to understand how to maximize your real estate holdings. Tell me how that feeling of needing information in 2011 eventually led to the creation of Phiology. I will say that in 2011, I was not even particularly that motivated towards financial independence. I didn't even know that it was an established term. We all heard financial freedom, we hear retirement, but financial independence as a movement, I didn't know anything about it. So again, from 2011 to 2016, I think it was, I just plugged along in my narrow playing field of information as I got it and try to plug it into my own finances. So again, really not very focused. In 2016, Stephen called me and said, hey, you got to check out this Mr. Money Mustache guy. Now I know Pete gets a lot of airplay on every single podcast. And you know what? He's earned it. Because once you see that, and again, the same article is referenced in every single podcast, at least at some point in the duration the shockingly simple math behind early retirement for people who think logically, analytically, commonsensically, if that's a word. Once you read that, you can't go back. You can't. There's something in your brain that says, I have to reevaluate everything on how I look at damn near everything. So that was very powerful to me when you sent that to me. And then he followed that up with, oh yeah, and next May I'm going to Camp Mustache, Seattle. Do you want to go? Like, all right. I don't know anything about any of this stuff. Sure, I'll roll. So my daughter and I actually went up to Camp Mustache Seattle with Steven. I didn't know Paula Pant. I didn't know Doug Nordman. I didn't know Pete. I may at that point may have read five more articles that Pete had written at point. It was a really great uh, event and I'm glad that we went. So to how to bridge that to phyology, still nothing at this point. I'm just getting my feet wet, just dipping my toes in the phy community. So for those of you who don't know what phyology is, David, do you mind breaking it down? What's the point behind it? What is it offering and why would people tune into it? Phyology is a series of lessons that support the critical concepts of financial independence. It ranges from investing to mindset, to philosophy, to what's life like after financial independence. It covers the spectrum. And it is a single place where you can send people to go so that you don't necessarily have to have the uncomfortable money talks. You can just say, if you're interested in learning about financial independence, check out Phyology. They've got free lessons. And you can leave it at that. And you send those lessons to their inbox every week. So they don't even have to do anything, right? Right. So those who enroll will receive their lessons every Tuesday afternoon. It seems like you started Phyology really to educate the beginner, but what I've noticed is you've been building in a lot of new components that really make it very relevant, not just for the beginner, but also for the person who's, you know, very knowledgeable. Can you talk about some of those components? I see that you now have a podcasting section, you have a money coach section. Have you been trying to make it relevant to all levels of Phi? Like I mentioned before, I knew a lot of this stuff before ever knowing that it fell under the umbrella of financial independence. Most, if not all of us, come into the financial independence community with some basic knowledge of finances. 
That might be very basic. It could be, I just know a lot about real estate, but you might not be aware of all of these other topics that work with the other topics to make it all worthwhile and really, really meaningful. So once the 52 lessons were created, as any entrepreneurial spirit does, okay, what's next? How can I use this platform? How can I expand it to be more relevant, more real, more useful to the user? And because I know a lot of people in the FI community, I have conversations about a lot of the stuff with you, Doc G, with Paul, with many others. Actually, based on one of your podcasts, the FI coaching section was born. Hmm. You had Whitney Hansen as a guest on one of your earlier podcasts. And financial coaching is something that I've always found interesting. Maybe I'll do it after I retire from the military. Maybe not, but I've always found it interesting. And so I found that podcast very valuable. So I took that information. And I said, okay, let me reach out to Whitney. And I did, I think that very same day. And she said, that's a great idea. And she actually helped me put it together. Uh, some of the ideas that I, I told her what I was thinking and she, and she helped me out. And the Phi Coaches section of Phiology was born. So before, when I decided to move forward with a Phi Coaches section of Phiology, I didn't want it just to be a list of financial advisors, but I didn't want it to be just another set of advisors. I know there are some other sites that have a you know, list of 20 or 30 financial advisors but then their fee structures are all over the place. And I still think that's confusing for many in the FI community. So what I wanted to do, I came up with a list of tenants that the financial independence coaches would have to meet and sort of get everybody on the same ground, same common understanding of what you're getting or what the expectation of from a client standpoint and from a FI coaches standpoint. So when they agreed to those list of tenants, I agreed to put them on. So for anybody who's interested some extra motivation, some accountability. Then go to the five coaches section of the website now and do some exploring and find somebody that they can feel comfortable with. So David, I want to use something you said a few moments ago as a transition. You said, I know a lot of people in the financial independence community. And it occurred to me over this time, knowing you that you are one of the most known people in the independence community that no one knows. In other words, when I delve deep into this community and meet people who have been in it for a long time and are some of the big time content producers, the movers and shakers, they all seem to know you. But I've noticed that you don't tend to put yourself out there front and center. Are you a behind the scenes kind of guy or do you prefer the limelight? I think that no matter what we put our effort and energy into, we have to focus on our strengths first and then determine the objective, and then use your strengths to accomplish that objective. I would consider myself a facilitator. You say behind the scenes, that's clear enough. So to best support my objective, which is spreading the message of financial independence, I try to understand the five community group dynamics. I make suggestions and intervene where I think some benefit can be made. And if the five community is strengthened because of that, then I've done something good. I'm always thinking who can benefit from knowing this person or that person. It might be a clear networking situation for a project, or it could just be, hey, I think this person might like that person. I'll try to connect them over a shared message in Facebook or something like that. So it kind of works out. Uh, in general, uh, my wife always thinks of me as a social guy. We move around a lot. Like I mentioned earlier, we moved to Erie, Pennsylvania one time, and, and I was out painting the side of the house. And I think within a week, I knew probably 10 or 15 neighbors. And even a year in, we meet neighbors that didn't know the other neighbors that I knew the very first day I was there. Probably it's my nature as well, just to try to make connections. I was about to say, when Paul and I were discussing interviewing you, the term that came up was the connector. And in a lot of ways, I kind of see that as your role in the financial independence community. 
So I'm wondering if the transition to creating and publishing Phyology felt a little uncomfortable at times, because as opposed to being the behind the scenes connector, and granted, within Phyology, you also connect people, you bring people together to write each lesson plan, etc. But did it feel uncomfortable or different to then put yourself up front and center as the producer? No, for me personally, it did not. I'm okay with being assertive and getting things done. So once you have that objective, uh, you kind of just go for it. And I think that's also characteristic by many of the people in the financial independence community, whether that's the why of FI or whether that's the why of anything we want to do. As soon as we know that what that why is and identify it, uh, we kind of get there pretty quick. So it's just a series of steps that you take from get to point A to point B and then phyology happened. It did happen pretty quick though. I'll say that. And it started in April of last year. The idea uh-huh. was a little bit, I think uh, maybe October or so the year before, but then really got things moving, started posting lessons in April of last year. And I think we posted the 52nd lesson in November and it really could not have been done by myself. Absolutely could not have been. So if you go there and you poke through the lessons uh, you'll say this lesson shaped by so-and-so at this site. And the amount of support from the FI community to get this done was really immense. And it really just goes to show you that people believed that it was a worthwhile endeavor. And that really kind of bared itself out. At the time of this recording, I think we've got about 1,250 people enrolled right now receiving uh, the biology lessons every week. So I think it's validated itself. And I don't want this to come off as in any way that David did all the work. Absolutely not. I just created the framework and connected the people, connected the dots and made it happen. It's funny because even as we talk about this, you've specifically gone and put yourself again back behind the scenes and pushed other people forward, which again, I think is part of your charm and part of the role you play. You played a big role in the creation of this podcast. Do you want to talk to the audience a little bit about your nudging that led us to start the What's Up Next podcast? Yeah. So there's this one example at a Camp Fi South event that happened last year. I've known Paul for a while at that point. I met him at a previous Camp Fi, I think it was earlier that year, January mm-hmm. in Florida. That's right. And the entire weekend, I didn't even know. I mean, a tall, debonair, handsome, <laughs> rugged, like the Paul Bunyan of real estate. But the thing is, the entire Camp Fi in January, I didn't know anything about him. If you know him, he kind of just, he's there, he's observing, he's taking it all in. He doesn't throw it in your face, which I appreciate. But I didn't find out till the Monday morning that he's like, knows every single thing there is to know about real estate. So the opportunity was lost, but I kept that in mind. And at Camp Fi South, that's where I met you for the first time, Doc G. And Paul was there and both of you presented and you did excellent jobs presenting. And we left that Monday and I think everybody was had a great time and we went on and continued our normal lives. And I don't know if it was a day or two or the next week. And Doc G, I don't even remember if, if we were talking over the phone and you mentioned something about a podcast or if that was my idea. I don't remember that exactly. But then I thought, man, Paul's already got a podcast. There's the technical side of it. Many in the space want to learn about real estate. It seems like it's one of the pillars of five for some reason. Uh, not necessary, but a lot of people think of it like that. So there's a big value there. He knows the X's and O's of creating a podcast. And up to this point, Doc G, I don't think you had. And Doc G, you had this genuineness about you, a smooth philosophical side, and you just really gentle to be around. And so whoever's idea it was, I'm glad that it came out. And the next thing I know... I think I threw it out there and I don't know how long it was after that, but then you said, oh yeah, we're starting a podcast. I'm like, oh, great, great. That's an awesome idea. Yeah, I would say it seemed that you and Dave from Accidental Fire, both around the same time, started pushing both Paul and I saying, hey, you guys should really do a podcast. And I remember Dave said, he's like, I've heard you on some podcasts and you seem like a natural. So 
I think it's, again, one of the great reasons to have you on this podcast is not because you were the start of this, although you were certainly a big part of it. But again, I think it kind of talks to that role you have of connecting people and ideas and kind of behind the scenes pushing things forward. A lot of these conversations started at a Camp Fi, and you've mentioned your brother already a few times, Stephen. Tell me how it's been like to go through this process with a close family member who sees things in a similar way, if you do. I know lots of us work very hard to get spousal buy-in, to get our spouses to buy in this idea of financial independence, and it's even harder to get non-spousal family members interested. Tell me about that. Has it felt like a big benefit? Has it been painful or exciting? What's it like to have a brother who's into the same things you are? Probably the best way for people to relate to me on this one is by thinking if they had a childhood friend constantly in contact since they're very young, this person is there through the good, through the challenging times, no exceptions. Stephen has been that for me. I also have an added bonus that we're identical twins. So we not only look alike, which at events at Camp Fives, I think has a benefit, but we also think a lot alike. And we are on the same wavelength with 90% of things that are going on around us in our lives. So it really has been useful to have somebody as a sounding board to get a pat on the shoulder from or a kick in the butt from. And Stephen and I really kick around ideas a lot. Stephen is the founder of Camp Fi, and that is a huge undertaking. It's a huge endeavor, but it's definitely a worthwhile one. He believes in very strongly, and I support him in that role. And just because I've got Phyology and Stephen's got Camp Fi, these are not the first and only ideas we've ever had. They're just probably like some of the first ones that were pretty good. If I had the idea to go out on a busy street with a megaphone and preach the gospel of the 4% rule, Stephen would be the first one to say, David, that is a terrible idea. And then he would follow up with some worthwhile alternatives that wouldn't get me beaten up or arrested. And it's always good to have somebody in our corner that doesn't want us to be arrested. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? 
I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right, we've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do you feel like, guys, people confuse you in the community? I mean, you've mentioned that you do phyology, he does camp phy. But I will say there's definitely similarities between you that go much farther than your looks. Again, I see you both in that same role of stepping back and being behind the scenes more and connecting people. Is that ever difficult? Do you ever feel like people confuse who you are or what your message is? I think it might be difficult if we were drastically different or if we had different agendas or motivations. But all those things are very much aligned. So... If someone comes to me, and it does happen often, I'll get a message from somebody on Facebook. Hey, are there any tickets left for Camp Fi? Or, hey, what time am I speaking on that Sunday of Camp Fi? Or whatever it is. I'll just politely say, I can speak on Camp Fi a good bit, but I'm not your guy. And then I'll just open it up to Steven. So no, not at all. I welcome it. He's a really great guy. And I'd like to think, I guess I am, or that he thinks I am. So I think there's an actual positive synergy that can happen within the community with both of us. So being as connected as you are, what some of your thoughts are of the future of the financial independence movement? I think we've got to this place where things are picking up steam, right? The fire movie is going to come out soon, playing with fire. This is going to really introduce en masse, at least the United States, to this idea. But we've been getting more and more fire followers as time has gone by. Where do you think the movement is going? I think we each individually define what the FI movement is for us. And as long as we do that and we're clear about that, I think that's really what matters. As far as this overarching FI movement, it is fun to watch. There are a lot of overarching factors that I think we give too much play towards. You've got the market near an all-time high. And as soon as that triggers or goes down 20, 30%, which we had this little blip over the last uh, winter, uh, and it doesn't take long, what, a day, hours to be in these finance Facebook groups for people saying, I just shifted all my money over. And then people judging the people who shifted their money over and then saying, no, don't do it. It's interesting to watch, but I think it's really important for us to decide for ourselves what financial independence means for us and stick to that. Yes, there are a lot of personalities. There's blogs, there's movies, there's camp spies, there's biologies, there's all these other projects, but what does it matter? It matters what it means to you. 
Do you think there's a financial independence bubble? Do you think once the market drops that we're all of a sudden going to have a lot of people flee the movement and go back to kind of previous behavior? So this is a common question that some podcasts ask. So I have given that some thought. I think that depending on where you are on your journey, it's going to affect you differently. So if you're older, you know, some people might be listening that are older than me that might chuckle at that, but I'm 41. Uh, I did see the last crash. So did you, Doc G. Paul, I think you're like 23. So you probably didn't see it. But the hard line, the spectrum of ways to become five, you've got the Jim Collins, put it all in stocks and let it ride and forget it and 4% withdrawal, all good. And then you've got people who do some kind of hybrid between that method, real estate, entrepreneurship, something else. I think all those hardlined on the all stocks way of doing business towards FI are going to definitely consider other options as they go later in life. The math works out the same. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm saying the psychological aspect of watching your money go down 40% and it's tied up in a mutual fund and you don't, and you're relying on cash flow to pay your bills and maybe even continuing to build your net worth. Those all have a dynamic and they play with each other. And for me personally, I like having real estate because it gives me that comfort of knowing that when the stock market goes down, I can still expect a rent check every month. And the benefit of that is I'll be less likely to freak out and shift my money from stocks to somewhere else. If I'm relying on the cash flow from my rental properties, I'm a little more calm over in my stock portfolio and I might not touch it. So David, what would you characterize as your role The leading question here was, what is everybody's role in the financial independence community? How would you describe your personal role? Well, I would say that mine is just, I like how Doc G said, as a connector. That's in my personal life. That's my FI community life. I think that's just who I am. You may not be a connector. You might have other strengths and be wondering, how can I help in the FI community? How can I continue this movement in an upward trajectory that it's seen over the last few years and hope that it continues? Even in a down market, I hope that it continues. But I would encourage people to just participate however you feel comfortable. There are a lot of introverts. There's extroverts. Again, earlier, if you identify your strengths and then use those strengths to meet the objective, and if your objective is to strengthen the five community, do it. There's a lot of ways you can do it. There are a lot of ways you can do that. If you don't want to start your own blog, you can support the content creators that do have blogs. I know it feels great when somebody leaves a comment in a comment section. I know it feels great when somebody shares your link on social media. And if content creators who get that type of support, they're likely to continue creating maybe even more feverishly or, or more assertively if they feel that what they're doing is validated. So you may not be a content creator, but support those who do, support those who you believe in, and a lot of good can come from that. Also, I'll say from the outside looking in, there's a lot of articles out there, bashing on the fire movement, and that's okay. But for those of us who believe in the FIRE movement and want to see it grow and gain traction and credibility, I think messaging is very important to outside the FIRE community. And the story I gave earlier where, and I've been guilty of it, it starts like in conversations with your neighbor or your friends. That's where it starts. Don't be that guy who says, you suck because you don't have Republic Wireless. Be the guy that says financial independence is a thing. There's a lot of pros to it. So if you're ever in need to give the basics, and then if you're interested in learning more, offer yourself as a resource and go from there. Even at the most basic level, I think that can do a lot of good for the financial independence community and maybe even prevent some of the financial independence hating that goes on out there. Now, this is based on most people in the FI community have such good intentions. It's easy to get very excited about financial independence after reading articles 
like Pete's shockingly simple math article. And what do you do next? You want to go share it. You want to tell it. You want to preach it. You want to yell it. And even more so, you want people to hear it. That second part almost never happens. But it shouldn't prevent you from trying. You just got a bit smarter about how you actually do it. So if, if we can control that messaging and with a little bit more tact, then I think it might prevent some of the haters out there as well as maybe get some more people on our side. I love to talk in this way about our community because we get so caught up in the roles of creator or consumer. And what you're pointing to is the fact that there are a huge number of other roles. You and your brother, to some extent, are connectors. We have other people who are cheerleaders. Uh, We have people who are amplifiers. All of these roles are important to the community and all of them forward this community as a whole. And so I think it's important to embrace each part of the community and every role that we have to play in it. Given the fact that you were at least a large part of the beginning of this podcast, we thought we'd give you a chance to turn the tables and interview Paul and I. Were there any questions you wanted to ask us? I know since the Camp Five South, Doc G, you have really reduced your amount of work. And that's allowed many things to open up for you. It's allowed you time to work on this podcast, probably to make a lot more connections in the community yourself. All of that's understandable. And I think probably expected, especially if someone of your caliber. What were some of the unexpected things that you've encountered since you've basically eliminated the stress of work? So maybe not unexpected, but certainly profound. I've definitely noticed that the parts of my personality before I became a doctor and before I started working full-time that I really enjoyed, some of those had disappeared with the stress of work. My sense of humor. I've always thought of myself as a fairly funny guy, but over the years of the stress and the burnout of medicine, I think some of that joy left my voice. And at times I wasn't as funny. I wasn't as connected. I wasn't as relaxed and calm. So one of the big profound changes is I've found even in the few months of slowing down that I'm becoming the person I used to be before I got so deeply into the training as a physician. And my family's noticed it too. I mean, people have come to me and said, boy, you know, My wife said, ah, this was the guy I met, you know, 20 whatever years ago. So it was this really big, profound change. The other change that I've also really noticed is we say this all the time. It's not about money, right? We say this. It's not about money. It's not about money. It's not about money. What you realize once you slow down or even once you quit is that all the issues you had before financial independence are still there even afterwards. So... I know one of my major issues is achievement. I thrive on achievement. I always have. And one of the benefits of getting to financial independence is that I don't really have to achieve anything more, at least from a financial standpoint. But that's also somewhat awkward because it's part of how I identified myself. And over the last few months, I've really realized that achievement was painful for me in a lot of ways because I was trying over and over again to reassert my importance in the world. And every time I did that by achieving something, I realized that I then felt empty again and felt like I had to reassert myself over and over again. These are the treadmills of our lives, right? We talk about the hedonic treadmill, but I certainly was caught up in the achievement treadmill. So a big part for me is actually trying to slow down, accept imperfection, do things for the joy of doing them as opposed to what will result from them. And just chilling on a lot of it, realizing that I'm either a good person or a bad person. And whatever I achieve in the future is not going to change that. And that's something that 
I have to remind myself over and over and over again, every time I start jumping into a project and putting too many hours into it and getting too caught up in it and starting to get sad or depressed when it doesn't get to the levels I want it to get to. So I think that's been a a profound change for me. And this realization and learning how to pull back and do a little bit less is something I've really been working on. Hey, Paul, so as Doc G has taken his foot off of the gas pedal, it doesn't appear that you have any signs of slowing down. You've got family, which is priority number one. You've got real estate. You've got another podcast. You've got this podcast. I know you've got some other things in the work behind the scenes. And I know that you're very active in Little Rock real estate. How do you balance it all? Hmm, That's a great question. Well, it really helps. I don't have a day job anymore. That makes it way easier. The 40 or 50 hours a week that I was having to spend building somebody else's dream is no longer there anymore. So now I'm only building my own dream. So I have this concept of a life list and all these things that I'm working on and they don't feel like work to me. I'm certainly busy. I do a lot of things, but I've gotten a lot of irons in the fire, but they are for me and they are about building what I want my life to be with my family and the people that I love. But the big switch for me was when I was working a day job, that was always about fulfilling some sort of goal for the corporation. You're always busy on a project to do and accomplish a goal, but it was never at the service of somebody else. Not really. What I do now with my projects, my own personal passion projects, is they are fundamentally about the service of others. So I certainly find them personally rewarding, but I get the contribution out of life that I feel like is important for all of us because I see the effect it has on other people's lives. So I didn't say anything about balance there. I don't talk about balance at all. I do what I'm passionate about and the only thing I have to balance there is not taking away from my own family. It's ironic that the very people that I want to do this for are the people that I have to step away from in order to do passion projects. So I take a lot of vacations with my family and I work from home almost exclusively. I'm very careful about what I say yes to if it doesn't allow me to spend it with my family. So especially over the last year, I have been doing phyology and I do have a day job that at times is very busy. And it takes a lot of time away from passion projects and family. And I, sometimes I find myself sitting at a computer, typing up something for biology or sending an email and knowing that my kid is right outside the door. And I wonder like the long-term effects of that kind of stuff is. So it's a difficult balance between family and work and passion projects. At some point, you're going to reach these goals. You're going to reach these financial independence. For Dr. G, you've already got the money squared away. Paul, you may have a little bit more to go. I'm not sure exactly. But it is for something. And if that something is family and taking your foot off the gas pedal like Doc G has done, what is that for you specifically, Paul? What does this mean for you? Are you going to take your foot off the gas pedal and stop doing podcasts or other things whenever you've reached your number and whenever you have achieved your objectives? For me, it's not about the number. I don't build a work on creating a pile of money then to turn around and take it as an early withdrawal to have a stream of income. I focus much more on building projects that are active on the front end that turn into streams of income. I mean, I still do stocks, but I find buying an index fund the most boring conversation around. I just don't want to talk about it. It's a great idea. It's a great strategy. But what else is there to talk about? I find the other pathways to freedom is what I call them real estate and building businesses and learning the skills it takes to do those things far more interesting. I have a high startup personality and a low follow-through personality. So I want to start up 
build something and then intentionally with it have the end in mind so that it turns into a stream of passive or residual income. And you can get real technical about how passive passive is, but I think you know the spirit of what I mean by that, where I have systems and automation in place where it doesn't require a lot of me. So I spend maybe on the high end of 10 hours a month on managing my rental properties in my portfolio. Well, now I spend my time building a business, which I would not consider myself a master of yet, but I'm learning a lot doing it. And that learning process is what I do. That is my purpose and my mission is to learn something and share it. And so I will never stop doing that or I would not be fulfilled. Yeah. And I think people also forget how limiting the nine to five is. The chunk of time that you're away from home, and and let's be real, for most people, the nine to five is actually the eight to six. So when you're talking about family and being involved and being around, just by eliminating those set hours and working on other people's schedules and showing up to other people's meetings, it actually relieves you of so much bandwidth that once you let go of all that structure, you can actually accomplish a heck of a lot more in less and better time. So for instance, I can be home in the morning and drive my kids to school and get all that time with them And then I can do whatever I want from nine to three when they're gone, but I can do it very efficiently. Then at three, I can stop, go pick them up, spend an hour or two with them, have dinner with the family, et cetera. Then once they go to bed or once we're sitting watching TV at nine at night, I can pull the computer back out and start working intensely again. And so the point being is that financial independence gives you this lever to pull to have more control of your life. It doesn't mean you're going to work less at least most of us, because I think most of us have the push to work. I think we have the energy and the interest and we want to create and do things. I don't think we're going to actually work less. I say quote unquote work because you may or may not be making money for it, but you can do it in a much more efficient, natural manner that fits the rest of your life better. And so I think if you look at both Paul and I, we're at different places in our lives, but our paths have led us to maximal control of how we use time. I don't think anyone would look at either of our lives and say that we don't work hard. I think both of us actually have very busy, active lives, but we've allowed to transition to these lives that are much more controllable. And I think that's kind of the superpower of getting to this place. We've all got kids and we were explaining how we balance, if there is a balance between family, work, and five projects. And because we've got kids and because we're immersed in the spy community, we always... I don't know about always, but we do refer to second generation FI. And I think everybody takes a different approach. Everybody's kids are unique to themselves. So they're ready for financial education at different points. And Paul, I think, how many kids do you have? Like two. You've got two kids. And Doc G, you've got some kids as well, too. And I know because you smart guys that you're thinking about this. What's your ideas going forward that you're willing to, I guess, publicly share here Uh, regarding your kids and money because they know that at some point they're going to make the connection that you're going to be just fine for the rest of your life and that they're set up pretty well to do the same thing because of either modeling or because you're going to gift them money along the way, something like that. Uh, What are your ideas for that and how are you implementing anything specific for your kids? And then even with your kids, is it going to be different for one or the other depending on their age gaps or personalities? So I use two major techniques. Uh, One is modeling as simple as that. My kids see me working on our finances. They go with me to show real estate. They go with me to closings. They go with me if I have to go fix something in one of my units. I talk to them about the stock market. They see me on Vanguard's website buying or selling things. 
they see me at the store purposefully not buying or price comparing or buying used, or they see us when we're done with something in the house, selling it on Craigslist or eBay. So I think the first and foremost, probably the most important is modeling. We do, however, focus a little bit with them on budgeting. So we do a yearly budget. We give them all their allowance at once on January 1st, and then it's up to them to budget for the whole year. So I think if you can model good financial behavior and if you can teach them how to budget at a young age, that will probably be enough to make them successful human beings. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've definitely would characterize myself as still trying to figure this out. Everything's an experiment with your kids because as soon as you figure out one stage, they move on to the next one, you're having to figure it all out again. And then each kid has their own personality. We're always walking around in fog when it comes to raising children, at least that's the way I feel. But what I'm doing with my children is we talk about money a lot and, and I don't try and force it. I, I'm very careful not to make them hate the idea that I bring up money, but I make them make decisions about money. So they earn an allowance or they get money from their family or something. And I intentionally make them budget it and I let them make mistakes with it when it comes to small money. And so for example, just yesterday for Valentine's Day, they got a card in the mail for some money, like 25, they each got $25, which is a very generous gift for kids that are 11 and eight. And I said, go spend it, you know, I like, or you can invest it, you know, but it's up to you. And they went to Walgreens and we got some candy and whatnot. And I said, now what are you going to do with what's left over? And they said, well, maybe I can just give it to you. I said, well, you can give it away if you want to, or you can invest it. And so we talked about putting it into their investment account, which they have. And you can kind of see the, the wheels clicking a little bit and I don't make them say for gifted money, but their allowance that they get so much of it, then they only get an investment income from it if they don't spend it. So I give them a pretty hefty 10% interest on every amount of money they have in their bank account every month. So if you were to just leave that money there, I would not be able to afford to keep up with them probably. <laughs> and in just three or four years, they'd be multimillionaires if they would just leave that alone. And of course they won't. And that's the idea that I try and show them and they're just getting to be old enough where they're starting to process and they ask me questions like, so daddy, how much money do you make being a real estater? And oh, okay. Yeah. So they're starting to ask the right questions. And so we have little conversations about that. So I, I make it a, a very common public topic amongst our family that we talk about money and we plan to use money according to our values. So I've got a 15 year old daughter and it hasn't come back to bite me yet, but I tell her that whatever she gives me, I'll double it and put it in her up my account. Now you would think that if somebody promised you a 100% immediate rate of return that she would be going to get a job. She'd be running around the neighborhood trying to do additional work. She'd be <laughs> digging through the couches. Doesn't happen. But I told her one day she'll understand and she'll look back and say, oh man, missed opportunity. But that's part of learning as well. Yeah. JL Collins, we had him on and he kind of mentioned some of his minor regrets about financial teaching and his daughter. And one thing he did say is he almost regretted a little bit that he pushed so hard because ultimately I think sometimes we can provide the information for the kids and then we can model real well, but we can't force them to consume it. And I think that was his point, Paul, if you remember correctly, I think that was his yep. point, but I think it's a very valid point. We're all going to have different kinds of kids and some of them are going to be just like us and they're going to be all over it. And then some of them are going to have their heads in the cloud and they're going to be thinking about something completely different. And maybe that's okay. And if we provide that information when they're ready for it, they'll consume it. Yeah, I think your modeling is probably the number one tactic. If you model and you're doing some good things, I think parents sometimes are hard on themselves thinking they're not doing enough. But really, I think modeling for the most part is probably enough. 
I agree. So at this point, David, we'll switch over to the conclusion. And so what we'll do, David, is we'll give you a chance to promote yourself, biology, anything else that you want to share with the audience. And what is up next for you? Where can we find you? And what's up next? Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me on today. I'd like to thank you specifically for all the work that you're doing in the five community and the support that you've given me personally over the last few years. And more importantly, for the friendship that we've developed during that same time. I know that it will continue. If people want to get in touch with me, they can click on the contact button on phyology.com. It'll send me an email. I'm also on Facebook. I'm sure my name will be spelled somewhere on the graphic here uh, so people can check it out. Uh, But I'm always willing to help. And just as I tell my neighbors and friends, please reach out to me. Use me as a resource. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we would like to thank David Boyer of phyology.com. That's a wrap. Paul, our future friendship depends on what I sound like on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I can pretty much make you say whatever I want to at this point. Nice. We're we're just going to create a whole new script and put your voice to it. It'll be (laughs) perfect. So, Paul, have you you ever uh, opened up the podcast with like, Hey, y'all, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. <laughs> Thank y'all for joining us. I should. That? I should. Well, there you go. You can just, start, you can just use that right there. <laughs> well, that, that's going to, we're, we're definitely going to use that for something. <laughs> <laughs> because we're still recording. We're still recording. We're just going to randomly put that in a snippet. Like, wait, yes, wait, what yes. <laughs> right in the middle of you speaking, saying something, we're going to just drop. Hey, y'all. <laughs> hey, y'all. You're just really gentle to be around. I don't know if that's a... a I'm trying to say something good here. Hopefully it comes out that way. (laughs) He's like, I'm really struggling to find something good to say. (laughs) As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 